Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 68 for our Old Testament lesson. song God taught us to sing through David. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain. Before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel, rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil, though you men lie among the sheepfolds. The wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, Mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines, 
Bless God in the great congregation. O Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain, there is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God in his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Here David celebrates God as the divine warrior who goes before his people, who crushes their enemies, and who brings them safely to himself in his divine sanctuary. Now I ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 in the New Testament for our New Testament reading. Ephesians 4 begin I'm going to I'm going to read beginning with verse 1 in order to give us the context but our focus is on verses 7 through 10 I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But the, he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we do come to you asking for wisdom and insight this morning. You have the words of life, 
and we desire to embrace them, to feast upon them, to be transformed by them. Oh Lord, open our eyes that we might see Jesus. Open our ears that we would hear him speak to us this morning. And change us by your spirit working your word in our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Some of you will hopefully remember that last spring we did begin a study of the book of Ephesians that was disrupted by the busy summer months, and that we did so begin a study of Ephesians because in this letter we find the Apostle Paul's clearest expression of his doctrine and understanding of the church. When he wrote it, he was imprisoned in Rome because of his faith in Christ and because of his efforts to plant churches across the Roman world. He had spent two years in Ephesus using that great city as a base to reach further into Western Asia Minor to plant even more churches. But now he was in prison. He was unable to go to those churches and visit and encourage them as he was wont to do. And he was concerned for the churches. What would happen to them? Would they continue to prosper and grow? And so he sent this letter to that end. Now such exhortation and encouragement as we find here is most timely even for us in our own place and time. Our world is in upheaval and the church is not immune. The pandemic, the accelerating extremism of the sexual revolution, deepening divisions over race and politics, all have affected not just the world around us, but the life and ministry of Christ's church. We need to be reminded of who we are as Christ's people and as his church and how Christ, as head of the church, wishes for us not just to exist in the midst of this turmoil, but even to thrive and prosper and grow to the glory of God. That's what we find here in the letter to the Ephesians. In the first three chapters, Paul sets forth his theology of the church, who and what the church is as God has ordained it. In the last three chapters, he addresses how this church is to live and serve God and serve one another. 
So we find in chapter 1, Paul beginning with the doxology of praise to God, that he has blessed us in Christ, in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing that there could be. And then he bursts after that doxology into prayer, that we might see what Christ has done for us and what God has for us as his people. And then he reminds us in chapter 2, that we who are his people have been brought from death to life because of the grace given to us in Christ. And then he goes on to point, not only have we been brought from death to life, but that Jew and Gentile, long bitter opponents, have been brought together as one in Christ. That Christ and the teaching of the apostles and prophets are our foundation, that we might be a holy temple to the Lord. And then in chapter 3, God shows, or Paul shows, how his ministry was given in service to the church, and how the church has been God's focus throughout history that he might display his glory in and through the church. The church is not just another institution that popped up, but the church has been God's design for all of history that all of creation would one day see the glory of God revealed and reflected in the church. And he closes that chapter with prayer that the church would indeed see and experience this glory in Christ. God's glorious role and our part in that glorious rule of God for eternity. But then beginning in chapter 4, there is a significant shift where now having set forth who we are, who we need to remember that we are, and now he wants to ask us, he wants to exhort us to become who we are to put into practice what it means that we are God's people, the church. And so he begins by calling upon us to live up to our holy calling. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he gives us the foundation of that unity that should drive us to pursue it. He says, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The sevenfold one, a drum roll, one, 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 ending in God, who is the Father of all, who is over all, who is through all, who is in all, 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 all. Now that his application 
would begin with a call to unity. To be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace suggests that all was not united in the church. That's why he's written this letter. He hasn't been able to visit them. He's hearing reports that all is not united in the church. So he reminds them of who they are as the church, and now he calls on them to, to be united. And it wasn't just the church in Ephesus in the first century that struggles to be one. The church today in the West struggles to be one. There are any number of things that can divide churches today. From masking and vaccination for the coronavirus to racism and social justice and is the church complicit? What is the church to do? To Donald Trump, good or bad? Politics? To war? Even in more erudite things like how much water in baptism and who is to receive it. There are any number of things that can divide us. The list goes on and on. But the hope for unity in the face of all these differences, however they might manifest themselves, lies not in our ability to persuade one another, not in our effort to steamroll over someone who disagrees with us. In order to enforce uniformity, our hope for unity lies in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his person and his gifting that he has given to us. That's where our hope lies for unity. It's not in ourselves. And it's not in other people. Too often we, we encounter division and we think, oh, if those people would only see things our way. If we could only force them somehow to do things the way we want to do them, then we'll all be united. But our hope for unity is not found in people, sinful people. Our hope for unity is found in Jesus Christ and his gifting to the church. Now Paul has just issued a clarion call for unity rooted in the unity of the triune God. Notice, unity of the Spirit. One Lord, one God and Father of all. The unity of the Trinity, the sevenfold oneness that is true of us. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
the scripture now shifts direction slightly in order to clarify for us, as we think about unity, as we think about division, that un- first of all, that unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. And too often, our concept of unity is everybody must agree with me, everybody must look like me, everyone needs to act like me, and then we'll all be happy together. Stop and think for a moment. What would the world be like if there were some three billion of you walking around? That might be get aggravating rather quickly. No, unity is not uniformity. Look at verse 7. He says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, the New American Standard reading here is a little more precise in terms of word order. It says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And in that word order, there is a clear connection between verse 7 and the six verses that have preceded it. To begin with, the very first word of verse 7 is one. Now that one immediately links with the sevenfold one of verses 4 through 6. The unity of God, one. So that links to the unity emphasis. We're talking about this unity and pursuing this unity. But then you have the word but. But to each one of us. Now this but is not a strong adversative. It's not this but that. Completely the opposite. This is a a soft adversative. A gentle word. Sometimes it's even translated and. What it is is a connective linking what follows to what precedes, though it's shifting a little bit in direction. It may be a lot. It might be a little bit based on the context. But there's a clear link here in verse 7 to what's gone before. And the shift in direction is expanded by the word each. Focusing on the individual in contrast to the whole group, all, 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 but to each one. And the fact that it says each one really emphasizes that the direction shift is looking from the unity of the whole now to the individual. And the individual is singled out as being somewhat different from the rest of the all by the words according to the measure of Christ's gift. There's a different measure from one to another. So there is to be unity, but he immediately recognizes that that unity is not uniformity because there is difference. 
The presence of differences is not in itself cause for alarm. And sometimes we allow ourselves to get bugged out by minor differences. And we let them get under the skin and it becomes the proverbial burr under the saddle and we just won't let it go. But he says, no. But to each one, of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. If we judge our unity by complete uniformity, we are using the wrong measure because the measure of our unity is doled out by Christ. It's his gift. And in, in a strange way, he gives gifts, different gifts, in order to further the cause of unity. Now that almost seems counterintuitive. If he really wanted us all one, why not make us all alike? But none of us can reflect the glory of the infinite God all on our own. And by making us different, none of us can be independent. We all need one another. So unity is not uniformity. And we see that because Christ, the divine Savior, has given different gifts to each member of the church. Christ has given different gifts. Not just that somebody's different, not that somebody's going off on their own fad, but Christ has given Grace. Grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And in order to prove that this is the case, he quotes from Psalm 68. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, he's saying an awful lot here. In the first place, Psalm 68 is about God as the divine warrior who rescues and redeems his people. In saying that this proves that Christ is the one who is given the gifts, he is saying that Christ is God. He's immediately tying the divinity of Christ to his rule. Christ the Lord has given grace. And this grace that he's talking about is not saving grace. In chapter 1 and 2, he speaks of saving grace. But Paul in chapter 3 begins to speak of serving grace. So, for example, in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. It's the grace given him was different, and it, but it was given to me for you. There is a grace given for service so that we might serve one another. A distinctive grace, as it were, in order to foster the unity of the whole. He repeats this in verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. 
So the, the gift that makes me different, the gift that enables me to help you, is a working of God's power, not just me flexing my own muscles and showing how great I am. But rather, God is the one, Christ is the one who has given these gifts in order to benefit the whole. And again, in verse 8 of chapter 3, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Again, grace given so that he might preach to the Gentiles about Christ who is the source of all of our unity, as he is arguing here. Now, we need to hear that. Christ has given gifts of grace to us for service that is to be expended for one another. That means, first of all, that every one of you who believes has a gift of grace that is distinctive to you. Oh, it may be similar to many other people, but Christ has portioned out you grace in order to serve in his church. None of you can say, I'm not important here. No, Christ has given a gift of grace to you. No one can say I'm not needed here because what he gave to you is not what he gave to me. And so I need, you need the benefit of one another's gifts. Christ is the divine Savior who has given different gifts to each member of the church for our unity. Now, Christ's ability... To give these gifts of grace comes from his triumph in ascending from the grave to heaven. When he ascended on high, Paul sees in Christ's exaltation over the grave and ascension into heaven, the fulfillment of Psalm 68, where the divine king is ascending in victory over his enemies through the victories of his servant David. David is the one fighting for the Lord, but David himself sings of the Lord who has saved them, and he has ascended on high. With captives in his train, he's victorious. It's referring to a victory possession procession after battle where the king comes in and he has all the prisoners behind him. And then all the people are following, celebrating the great victory. And as John Stott noted, that exaltation of Jesus is seen by Paul as a fulfillment of the triumph of God on behalf of his people. So Paul says Psalm 68 is assuring us that Christ indeed has the power, he has the authority to give out different gifts, and therefore since he is the Lord, who are we to contend and question with him? Who are we to criticize that one gift was given here and another gift was given there? It is Christ's own apportionment, and he is the king. 
Now, there is a slight problem in that when we read earlier Psalm 68 in verse 18, David is praising God. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. But when Paul quotes it, he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Is the Bible an error? Does it contradict itself? Some people think it does. Some people say it's a clear proof of mistakes in the Bible. Other people say, well, it it wasn't an intentional mistake. It was accidental, but it still shows that there's mistakes. Some people argue that Paul's was, in fact, the original and accurate translation from the Hebrew because the Hebrew word All Hebrew words are based around three letters. And all you do with those three letters for any given word, you have the root three letters, and then you just add vowels and prefixes and suffixes, and it gives you every form and every use of that word. Well, the root word for receive and the root word for give are the same three letters. It's just one one letter has been transposed in front of the others. And so some say, well, it was just a copious mistake. But there's another answer I think that is more helpful. And it's this. When Paul is Paul sees the reference in Psalm 68 of God as the divine victor, ascending in triumph, In making reference to to verse 18, his mind is not just on that one verse. His mind is on the entire psalm. In a similar way, for example, what do you think of when I say 9-11? Is it just a day on a calendar? Or is it a day filled with death and destruction. You see, one word can lead and draw in an entire background, an entire context. When we look at Psalm 68 and the victory train, in the ancient worlds, when a king was victorious over his foes, he received the spoils of war but then he distributed them to his people. We see this as early as Genesis 14, when Abram went and rescued Lot when Lot was kidnapped. And you'll remember on his way back, he gave to Melchizedek a gift and offering, and he didn't keep anything for himself, but gave it to others. And here in Psalm 68, we read in verse 12, Speaking of the victory, the kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. The women have been given the spoil. 
Now in verse 18, in picturing the, uh, the procession, he says, you ascended high and you received gifts from men. You were the victor. You got all the spoils. But then at the very end of Psalm 68, in verse 35, we read, Awesome is God in his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. He gives power to his people. Paul has in mind the entire psalm where God not only receives from those that he conquers, but that he distributes power to his people. So he gives gifts as the triumphant Lord over all the enemies. And the diverse gifting by Christ is to further his sovereign purposes for the world. This is why he this is what he goes on to say in this parenthesis in verses 9 and 10. He's justifying using Psalm 68:18 as a reference to Christ when in Psalm 68 it's a reference to God and he explains in saying he ascended what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions the earth and he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things Now, in his opening prayer, that our eyes might be open to see the glories of what Christ's done. In chapter 1 in Ephesians, notice how he ends the prayer in verse 20. He wants us to to see the great... Uh, greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age and also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And now at the end of verse 10, he says that Christ ascended and descended. He descended and then ascended so that he might fill all things. In other words, that he might demonstrate his rule and his victory over all powers, wherever they may be found, whether in heaven or on earth. In this is followed, this thought, from the prayer in chapter 1 to uh, chapter 3, where he says, to bring to light, verse 9, For everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
God's purpose was that through the church, Christ's rule would be seen so that all powers and all authorities would be humbled before God and praise him for his glory. And this is what he's doing. Peter O'Brien writes, Christ fills the universe not in some semi-physical sense, but by his mighty rule over all things, as we saw in chapter 1, a notion that is paralleled in the Old Testament, where filling the universe in this sense of exercising sovereign rule is predicated of God in Jeremiah 23, 24. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? The idea transferred here to Christ, who fills the universe through the exercise of lordship over everything, this entails his functioning as the powerful ruler over the principalities, chapter 1, that he was far above all rulers and principalities and dominions, and by giving grace and strength to his people, through whom he fulfills his purpose. Christ's purpose for history is going to be fulfilled through the church. And Christ fills all things. He exercises his authority, even over death, for the sake of his church, because it will be through the church that Christ will bring glory to himself. He means to bring glory to himself through each one of you who believes. None of you is unimportant. None of you is insignificant. This is part of God's eternal plan. Unity is not uniformity. There will be differences. Sometimes there can be sinful differences, but not every difference is sinful. He's given different gifts and abilities to each one of us because none of us in ourselves can portray and reflect the infinite glory of the infinite Son of God. But together, as we share the distributed gifts from Christ, and we come together and use them in service to one another, this grace was given according to the measure of Christ. As we use them for one another, the world will more and more see the glory of God in sending his Son to redeem his people. Friends, that's exciting. That's exciting because it's saying that God has a plan for you, but that plan for you is not divorced from me or the person next to you, the person behind you, the person in front of you. God is working out his purpose in you in order to bless all of you that God's glory would be revealed. It's too easy to feel sorry for ourselves, to get aggravated at someone who's different. Unity is not uniformity. But when we stop thinking of ourselves and why others need to be more like me, and we start thinking of the gift of Christ that he has given me in order to serve the people around me, 
as we are focused on serving one another by the differentiation of our gifts, that unity happens. It will happen. And he will explain just how it happens in the verses that follow. But may we see and believe that Christ himself has given the gifts, that he is the divine warrior king who has all authority, that he has ascended into heaven. He has triumphed over death and every opponent. And he's bringing us along in his victory parade that we might live to give his glory out of his generosity to give to us the very gifts we need in order to serve him and serve one another. May God give us grace to be faithful to that calling. And may others look at this church and see something of the glory of God in this place. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your immeasurable gift of Christ and for the blessedness of Christ in giving gifts to us. Not that we might boast over against one another, but that we might serve one another and thus reveal the glory of our risen Lord. Stir in our hearts a greater zeal for that unity that comes through our giving of the gifts that we have received in service to you and to one another. And may the lives of others be changed for having seen your grace revealed and reflected in us. Thank you. Thank you for your power. Thank you that you are the Lord. Thank you that your promises are true and you will bring everyone to completion. And you have brought them and will continue to bring them to their fullness through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Our hymn of commitment today is number 355. We are God's people.